Welcome to Douglas Wilson's The Podcast. This audio is brought to you by Canon Press. Did you know that Canon just released the modernized Geneva Bible in a New Testament box set? The 1599 Geneva Bible is a remarkable Bible for many reasons. It was the first English Bible translated entirely from the Hebrew and the Greek. It was the first Bible with chapter and verse divisions. It was the first with a legible font and the first with maps, notes, and chronologies. Most importantly, it was intended not for displaying in churches, but for family reading. With that in mind, the MGB updates archaic syntax, spelling, and vocabulary of the first iconic Geneva version, allowing you to read without distraction the most important English Bible of the Reformation. If you're interested in learning more about the modernized Geneva Bible, visit modernizedgenevabible.com. So, welcome to the podcast. This is episode 176. Episode 176. I'm going to get into uh, several topics that have gotten me in trouble in the past. And someone's going to say, well, why do you do that? There's a reason. It's not that I like getting in trouble. And it's not that I like being accused of racism. I don't like being accused of racism. I think that actual racism, properly defined, is a sin. And I think that Christians should avoid it. But racism, the way it's used today, racism today is simply what you get called if you're winning an argument with a liberal. Or as Thomas Sowell once put it, charges of racism are like ketchup. They go on everything. So basically, I would prefer to talk about racial vainglory and racial animosity. If you are hostile to someone else simply and solely because of the color of their skin, then you are guilty of racial animosity. And if you believe yourself to be superior to that person simply and solely because of skin color and you're patting yourself on the back, then that's racial vainglory. But of course, the sinful part is the vainglory part or the animosity part. Uh, The sinful part is not the part where you have eyes in your head and you notice that his skin is darker than yours or yours is lighter. So if this is going to be of necessity, since this podcast is not that long, I can only wave at certain things. On these issues, I would describe myself as on the sociological description, sociological, anthropological, economic, political description of race and culture. I would describe myself as a disciple or a follower of Thomas Sowell, a distinguished economist. I just really appreciate his work on these things. Let that be the framework. One of the things that people don't budget for in their discussions of race is the fact that we are dealing with multitudinous causes whenever it comes to cultural differences. Uh, So I'll begin by saying uh, that the racists, and it was oftentimes the high racism of the early 20th century, the sort of thing that would be exhibited by someone like Woodrow Wilson, for example. The high racism of the early 20th century, the sort of thing that resulted in the eugenics movement, or Margaret Sanger, the uh, founder of Planned Parenthood, who wanted to extinguish what she called human weeds, Uh, that kind of rarefied racism was dealing with the quite obvious fact 
that certain cultures were superior to other cultures. Their problem was that they jumped to certain conclusions, and oftentimes those conclusions were simplistic in the extreme. So, in the beginning, uh, if you look at um, industrial culture in the West, let's say uh, American culture in the early 20th century, and then you uh, compared it to the culture of the Aborigines or uh, the culture of some tribe in the Amazon basin or some tribe in, in the heart of Africa, and you said, see, these people have not gotten to the invention of the wheel yet, and these other people over here are uh, doing these amazing technological things. The old school racists used to say, and we know what the cause is. The, the white races, the Nordic races, the Aryan races, they are genetically superior. Remember that the, the, the backdrop for their thinking was um, uh, Darwin and evolution. And so they were assuming that uh, as the human race evolves upward, it only makes sense that certain parts of the human race are going to be farther advanced and others are going to be uh, bringing up the rear, right? So they looked at the superiority of European and North American culture over against some tribal backwater. And they said, see, and the simple cause of this is uh, genetic superiority. So that was what the old time racist did. What the uh, new racists do is they, they say, yes, there's a differential. This culture is wealthier and got a lot more advantages and da-da-da-da. And this, this uh, tribe over here, this village is backward and they don't have enough food or medical care or whatever. And their simplistic answer is oppression. Basically, this is the, uh, uh, the Marxist critique. In other words, if someone's lagging behind someone else, it's because somebody in the power structure is abusing that power structure and using it for their own ends. So, if you uh, looked at the difference between African culture and North American culture uh, in the year 1910, you were likely to assume that it, was, it had a genetic cause and that whites were superior, and that, that would be genuine white supremacy. If you look at the, that differential now, you're going to have the tendency to say it's because whites are uniquely evil and they are manipulating the power structure to oppress people of color. But what you're leaving out of the consideration is that the differences between this group and that group more likely have 1,982 causes, not one. So, for example, there's a thing called the Flynn effect. When uh, a number of years ago, uh, Charles Murray wrote a book called the, uh, the Bell Curve, which caused a huge commotion at the time because he, was, he looked without flinching at IQ tests and how it played out with uh, different races. So, if you gave an IQ test to 10,000 people, Asians are going to score highest and whites are going to be next and blacks are going to bring up the rear. Charles Murray was handling that data. He was trying to make sense of it. And there was a big controversy about his work. That's just setting the stage for the next point I want to make. There were a bunch of people who just called Murray a racist for no good reason. He's a gracious gentleman and not, nothing of the kind. But there was, some, there was another fellow named Flynn. I think he's a New Zealander. 
F-L-Y-N-N, Flynn. And the Flynn effect is named after him. You've all seen how SAT scores and, and so on have consistently gone down over the years, meaning that our schools are failing. Uh, and then every so often, uh, because of the way the tests are structured, they have to renorm the test. And renorming the test the way they do masks the decline. So um, if someone graduates from high school uh, in 2020, and their grandfather graduated in 1970, and they compare SAT scores, you're, it's an apples and oranges thing because the, the way they score the test has been renormed because they've got to have uh, the middle line has to be in the middle, right? So they, uh, and as, as the scores have gone consistently down, they have to adjust. Well, Flynn pointed out the same thing is true of IQ tests. And so, for example, the fact that blacks bring up the rear in IQ tests is something that ought to be, if, if you budget for that and you investigate it, you'll see that, well, Thomas Sowell talks about this and uh, Flynn talks about it. Right around the time of the First World War, uh, the uh, U.S. military administered IQ tests to thousands and thousands of recruits, men, men coming in. And this was a data set that blacks did much more poorly than whites on this. But Flynn said, yes, but if you, over the years, the um, IQ tests, just like SAT tests, have to be, have to be renormed. And I, IQ scores, in real terms, unlike educational scores, IQ uh, scores have gone consistently up, uh, such that blacks today, taking a, blacks on average taking an IQ test today, score right around where the whites scored at the time of the First World War. So, one of the things this tells you, incidentally, is that IQ is not a hardwired thing. It's not genetic. It's not something that is, oh, you can't do anything about it. And that enters into the whole nature-nurture uh, debate, which we're not going to get into now. I'm just going to, I just want to say, and this is my, my central point here, is that we ought to pick one thing, like skin color, like, like you could go to the paint store and get a swatch and decide if, if, um, if someone says something politically conservative and you hold the swatch up next to them, and if it's past a certain darkness, it's coming from an Uncle Tom. And if it's got a certain level of whiteness, it's a uh, white supremacist. That kind of making everything down to someone's skin tint a political issue, it's uh, just outrageously simple-minded. When you look at the cultural achievements of a people, you have things like language, things like river, uh, natural resources, things like available livestock, religion, the gospel, multitudes of uh, contributing factors. I think we ought to be done talking about races as though there's a white race. There's not a white race and there's not a black race. If we're talking about culture, I think we can talk about tribes. And if we're talking about some, you know, physical characteristics, uh, skin color, then maybe we could talk about breeds like, uh, like we're talking about uh, golden, golden labs or cocker spaniels or uh, short hair pointers. Does the human race display certain breeds? Yeah, it does. 
Do we have different tribes? Yeah, we do. And some of the tribes can be, uh, you know, the breeds can be the same breed, but very tribally distinct. Or you could have two different breeds be members of the same tribe. In other words, another way of saying this is this is a complicated subject. It is a complicated subject. Not only that, but here in podcast episode 176, after this homartiology section that's coming up next, I'm going to get into it again. You'll just wait in the book review. Just wait. So, continuing on with podcast episode 176, homartiology. In 2 Timothy 3, the apostle warns his young protege that he's going to have to deal with a certain brand of scoundrel in the last days. Now, I take this as a description not of the end of the space-time continuum. When, when Paul says the last days, I don't think it's the end of the world or the end of the space-time continuum uh, here. And I'll give you reasons for that in a minute. But rather, it's a description of how bad it was going to be in the final days of the Judaic Aeon in the years before the destruction of the temple at Jerusalem. That happened in 70 AD. Jesus predicted it. Not one stone will be left on another. Now, the reason for saying this is in verse 13, Paul says that these false teachers are going to get progressively worse. And then in the next verse, in verse 14, he tells Timothy that he should continue faithfully in the faith he had grown up in. In other words, Paul's describing people that Timothy 2,000 years ago had to deal with. Timothy was going to be confronting these people. So, Paul says, these people are going to get worse and worse, and I want you to continue in the faith you'd grown up in. Uh, Then in verse 4, when Paul's in the middle of describing these false teachers, he says to Timothy 2,000 years ago, now remember, Timothy died 2,000 years ago, and Paul tells Timothy, of these people, from such turn away. So, from such turn away. In other words, Paul's not talking about the end of the world thousands of years in his future. He's talking about 2,000 years in our past. Timothy couldn't very well turn away from them if they weren't going to show up for another 2,000 years or more. Now, all of that is to set up our word. As Paul describes these poisonous teachers, he uses the word we're looking at in this episode of Homartiology. The word is goes and is translated as seducer. Goes and is translated as seducer. 2 Timothy 3.13. It says, But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. All right, so evil men and seducers, he calls them. One of the things a seducer does is that he starts in the shallow end, and then he moves on to what is worse and worse. So, um, the false teacher doesn't knock on your door and say something like, hello, I'm from the devil, and I've come to lead you astray, or I've come to take you with me to the lake of fire. He asks for a little thing. Uh, It's just a slight compromise. It's just a little bit of fudging. And so, the seducer grows worse and worse over time. And what might be obvious to others standing by is not obvious to the seducer or the seduced. Notice that Paul says here, the seducer is deceiving, and he is also deceived. The seducer is deceiving, and he's also deceived. And then, when the inevitable calamity comes, everybody is surprised. Alright, onward. Um, we're, we're still uh, working through uh, our podcast, episode 176, and here's our, uh, our book review. 
in the Depression, one of the things that FDR did, I don't think he should have, but he did, is he hired, he hired some people. This was a public works project. In the 1930s, there were still a number of people alive who had been alive during the war between the states. And that meant in the black population that there were a number of former slaves uh, still alive. And so what FDR did is he commissioned a bunch of basically reporters, historians slash reporters, to go around interviewing former slaves about what slavery was like. Now, a number of these uh, people who interviewed were just children when they were slaves, but not a few were teenagers and could recollect quite, quite a bit about the, their time in slavery. And they could, there was um, a, lot of, um, a lot of people recollecting what the end of the war was like and what it was like when they had their, uh, their liberty announced uh, to them. Um, but I just recently read the, these slave narratives. So they were all collected, and this, these slave narratives um, were put together, which I read. There, there are a number of striking things about it. One of them is that if you were to read the abolitionist literature, whether it's the popular kind, Uncle Tom's Cabin, or the incendiary stuff that was describing all slavery as all evil all the time, sort of on, on the level of, you know, how we would think of the German treatment of the Jews, of the Holocaust, all evil all the time. That element was very plainly uh, there. What do we mean by that? Well, there, there, was, there were abuses and there was cruelty and, you know, some of the beatings that are described in these slave narratives have to be, uh, they're just staggering in their cruelty where uh, someone would be beaten to the point of being just about dead and then they'd get some mixtures like turpentine and uh, put it all over the wounds, you know, like excruciating pain. So basically, uh, you could you could go through the slave narratives and you could extract quite a few episodes, descriptions of that kind of abuse and cruelty and uh, degradation, and put them all together, and you would have a truthful first person recollection of appalling behavior. Every everything that uh, William Lloyd Garrison said about it, you say, "Man, this is Exhibit A, right?" Uh, but the other thing that's uh, another surprise is reading through it is there were also not a few many descriptions of deep warm affection family affection between masters and slaves and just personal loyalty that was also mind-boggling in other words there were evil people in this system and there were decent people muddling through in this system and after, after emancipation came, after the war and, and liberty came to uh, many of the slaves, a number of them stayed on to help their former masters manage, you know, manage their affairs. And a number of them would say things like, uh, I've, back in the slavery time, it was, that was the best part of my life. And that, was, that was really good. Or I was taken care of or, or had good food care, med medical care. I had a good situation back then, not like now. So, what this basically, what's, what's the point of uh, this? Well, one of the reasons I've gotten in trouble on this issue over the years is I have um, paid attention to what the New Testament says 
about masters and slaves. 1 Timothy, Ephesians, and Colossians, the book of Philemon. The New Testament was established. The New Testament church was established and contained within its membership Christians who were slaves and masters of slaves who were also members of the church. And sometimes it was Christian slaves who were slaves of Christian masters, which is anticipated in, uh, in 1 Timothy when Paul is telling slaves how to behave, don't begrudge your work um, because the person receiving the benefit of it is a brother. Now, uh, what I've argued over the years and continue to argue is that if whites in North America, both North and South, had been obedient to the scriptures in how the scriptures direct Christian masters to behave, and as a number of them did, as evidenced by this, uh, the slave narratives, and if there had been church discipline and criminal penalties for those masters who didn't, as the slave narratives uh, reveal, then we could have resolved the slavery issue in the United States the way every other Western country did, that is to say, without a war. We killed 600,000 people uh, in that war, and it was the price of our disobedience. Uh, and it was the price of northern disobedience, and it was the price of southern disobedience. That calamity, that war, was a very great judgment from God. And if, uh, if the abolitionists had been willing to adopt a reformational approach to the elimination of this social evil, this, the institution of slavery, and if the southern masters had been willing to embrace the same thing. Let's do, we're all professing Christians. We all claim that we believe in the inspiration of the Bible. Why don't we do what the Bible says? Why don't masters remember that they have a master in heaven and that he shows no partiality? So, basically, if you want to uh, read a book that reveals how human that tangle was, you know, the whole range of cruel, evil, vile people on one end, to decent, hardworking, affectionate, loving people on the other. You've got testimonies from slaves who said, uh, the master's wife was the nicest person I ever knew, uh, the master was the most loving person I ever knew, and then other testimonies that say, this overseer was the worst excuse for a human being that I ever saw. It's all there. It's all there. One other, one other little thing. I was surprised. This was, uh, I was not expecting this one. I knew some of this already, but I was not expecting the extent of it. And that was how many slaves were owned by Indians. Many of these accounts, the masters were Cherokee or Choctaw or Indian masters who owned black slaves. There you go. Mm -hmm.